Do artificial sweeteners give you diabetes and brain cancer? Um. What's the best way to put on quality lean muscle on keto? How to not slow down your metabolism with intermittent fasting? This thing is lightning in a bottle. Why is the world full of hatred and resentment? This and much more in today's Q&A episode of the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. My name is Seem and before we get on with the show, I want to let you know of a few upcoming events that I'm going to be organizing in Estonia. First, the Biohacking Bootcamp on July 7th to 8th. It's a two-day immersive experience with workshops, hands-on biohacking, training, saunas, foraging, cooking and so much more. The location is in Tallinn and about 50% of the spots are already full. And I'm only going to let in a few limited amounts of people to participate because a smaller group is going to be more effective and enjoyable. So if you are interested in meeting and getting coached by me in person, then check out the link at www.seamland.com forward slash body dash mind dash biohacking dash bootcamp forward slash. I'm going to share with you all my secret biohacks and how I structure my own nutrition exercise and see for maximum gains and efficiency. And speaking of getting more information, it's now time for Body, Body Mind, Mind Empowerment. Empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. There were many questions like, will sucralose from whey protein kick me out of ketosis? And are artificial sweeteners safe at all? So I decided to dig a bit deeper and kind of summarize how these non-caloric sweeteners and diet drinks, how they affect your overall body. Then you can decide whether or not or how much you want to consume these kinds of things. Sweet! So, are artificial sweeteners safe? There's definitely a lot of conflicting opinions and research about artificial sweeteners, especially what effect they have on your health long term. Some studies show that drinking diet sodas reduces the intake of calories, which reduces the intake of total calories and thus promoting weight loss. Sounds like a reasonable deal. You get to drink a beverage that tastes as good as the real one, but it doesn't have the same amount of sugar. It's like biohacking almost. However, other studies find that there is no such effect and some people even gain weight. This also seems obvious in my opinion, because if a lot of people eat double cheeseburgers and fries, but they rationalize it away with a Diet Coke, then there's no difference. They're gonna think like, okay, at least I'll save a few hundred calories, even though I'm already 1000 calories above my maintenance with those fries. Now I can eat anything! One 2013 study found that both regularly sugar-sweetened beverages as well as artificially sweetened beverages were linked with an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. However, more research is definitely needed for a causal link. Some studies have raised the possibility that sugar and artificial sweeteners in diet beverages may increase the risk of dementia and stroke. People who consumed non-caloric diet drinks suffered three times more strokes and dementia. In a large study called the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis, drinking diet soda daily was associated with a 36% increased risk of metabolic syndrome and a 67% increased risk of type 2 diabetes. One large meta-analysis reviewed seven randomized controlled trials with 1,000 people, and it also reviewed 30 cohort studies with over 400,000 subjects. 
Amongst the seven randomized controlled trials, non-nutritive sweeteners didn't have any significant effects on BMI or other secondary health outcomes. However, the average follow-up in these studies was just six months. Amongst the 30 cohort studies, non-nutritive sweetener consumption was associated with a slight increase in BMI and there were more incidents of obesity, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular events. Those cohort studies included over 400,000 people with an average follow-up of 10 years. The meta-analysis concluded that evidence from randomized controlled trials show that artificial sweeteners do not have a beneficial effect on weight management and observational studies link sweeteners with increased BMI and cardiometabolic risk. Although the golden standard in scientific research is the randomized controlled trial, more research is clearly needed to fully understand the long-term risks and characteristics of consuming non-nutritive sweeteners. Somebody bring me a Diet Coke! It means that artificial sweeteners may be associated with increased risk of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure and weight gain, although the evidence is not conclusive. There are probably many other lifestyle factors and dietary habits that have to be controlled, such as what kind of a diet they're following. Someone eating the standard American diet and swapping out the regular Coke with diet soda is probably already eating more calories despite the quote-unquote healthier option. Double cheese on the fries and a Diet Coke, please. Someone eating a whole foods-based diet will probably have better biomarkers to begin with and the consumption of some artificial sweeteners may not have a deleterious effect. Someone having a medical history of diabetes or insulin resistance will naturally react differently to different kinds of sweeteners because they could potentially raise their blood sugar much more than a healthy person. Someone having eating disorders may also react differently to artificial sweeteners which will cause them to either get more cravings or simply overconsume diet soda, which definitely can't be healthy in the long term. Someone eating a naturally lower carb diet will have developed a slightly different microbiome than someone who is eating more carbs. Even different foods like grains, legumes and starch would change the composition of the gut flora. They're going to have different strands of gut bacteria and if we know one thing then we know that we don't know anything about the gut and we definitely don't know how certain artificial sweeteners affect certain strands of bacteria and what effect it has. The human body is quite adaptable to different ingredients and poisons by developing tolerance to them in small amounts. I think it's safe to say that artificial sweeteners are mild toxins and it's very important to pay attention to the amounts and other conditions that vary between individuals. There's definitely not a one-size-fits-all answer to all of this. But why haven't we learned from our mistakes? When it comes to the other man-made foods that scientists have dared to tinker with, like trans fats, high fructose corn syrup, GMOs, glyphosate and spam, then we don't see a very good track record. We've basically always thought that we can create our own artificial superfoods that are more nutritious than real food and they're gonna have other benefits like reduced environmental costs or reduced calories. But when you look at history then so far we've had to pay quite a lot of debt for our mistakes. It was just a few years ago when vegetable oils and trans fats were said to be the healthiest fats for the human body. But after you structure the entire food pyramid around that kind of information, then the rise in obesity and metabolic disease has skyrocketed. 
we know that margarine is highly inflammatory and it basically increases risk of stroke but there are still some products that openly promote its non-existent health benefits i can't believe it's not butter in fact Trans fats have now been banned by the FDA and V companies have a few years to remove all trans fats from their shelves. I'm expecting a similar policy to be applied to some of the really bad artificial sweeteners like aspartame and Splenda in the coming years because we're constantly getting more research about their dangerous side effects. For instance, to diabetes. One scary thing to think about is how sugar and artificial sweeteners affect your brain and gut. We know that sugar lights up the same reward pathways in your brain as doing drugs, having sex or achieving your goals. It releases dopamine, which makes you feel like you did something good for yourself. That's why being addicted to sugar is virtually the same as being a heroin addict. The difference is only a matter of degree. People say that they're not addicted to sugar or carbs, but when they're forced to quit cold turkey, then they're gonna get similar withdrawal symptoms as if they've given up smoking or drinking. They're gonna get anxious, they're gonna get wiry, they're gonna get sweaty palms, and they get the cravings. Ice cream, an apple pie. Quitting artificial sweeteners may be as difficult as giving up any other addiction. Animal studies show that they're highly addictive. In a study, there were rats who were given cocaine. When they were given the choice to choose between intravenous cocaine or saccharin, most of them chose saccharin. They would much prefer to get that sweet, sweet saccharin instead of cocaine. Cocainum. There isn't much evidence to show that these artificial sweeteners light up the same dopamine pathways in humans, but they may affect the brain in a different way. One study done in the University of California, San Diego, did fMRI scans on volunteers who took small sips of water sweetened with regular sugar or sucralose, which is a common non-caloric sweetener. When real sugar activated the brain's regions involved with food reward, sucralose didn't. The researchers concluded that sucralose doesn't satisfy the desire for natural caloric ingestion and thus prevents the brain from recognizing that it consumed something rich in glucose. That sounds like another biohack. You simply trick your brain into thinking that it hasn't actually consumed anything, but it doesn't mean that sucralose can't spike insulin. A study done on obese people who didn't consume artificial sweeteners regularly saw a 14% increase in blood sugar and insulin levels by 20% when taking sucralose. However, people who have consumed sucralose regularly haven't noticed similar effects. It probably has to do with the fact that sucralose is like 300 times more sweeter than sugar and if you're not used to it, then you're naturally gonna elicit a higher insulin response. Injecting acesulfame K into rats has also been shown to elicit an insulin response in a dose-dependent fashion as much as the same doses of glucose. High amounts of acesulfame K increased insulin by 140 to 210%, but then again... Rats have a much lower body weight and they're gonna respond a lot more to these massive doses of acesulfam K. Despite their very low caloric content, artificial sweeteners still have a few calories and they're still metabolically active. They're going to be registered as food consumption by the gut and they're gonna be metabolized in some shape or form. It's called the cephalic phase of gastric secretion, where your body will release insulin in expectation of eating something. 
sights, smells, touch, taste and hunger levels all increase the stimulation of the desire to eat and therefore the body wants to prepare for digestion even before you've put the food into your mouth. The chain of events goes like this. You experience food-related sensory stimulation like the smell of fresh donuts, sight of a burger joint or the swishing of a sucralose solution in your mouth. This is going to stimulate the hypothalamus, which is the place where your brain stores memories and emotions. The hypothalamus remembers from past history and your evolutionary genetics that something sweet is a dense source of energy. Therefore, it's best to store as much of it as possible because it's vital. The hypothalamus sends a message into the gut via the vagus nerve to start secreting gastric juices and it's going to release insulin to prepare for the incoming food. Knock, knock. We also know that the subconscious mind can't really tell the difference between real and imaginary events. That's why envisioning yourself biting into a piece of lemon will make you feel as if you're really eating a lemon by making you salivate. Try it out. Try it out right now. Imagine yourself biting a lemon and see the difference. You're probably going to get some sort of stimulation from it, even if it's minute. The same thing could potentially happen if you look at a piece of cake right in front of you and you want to eat it, you're going to raise insulin without even eating it and artificial sweeteners probably have the same effect. The theory is that after you consume something sweet, even if it's artificial, you're going to release insulin. There are specific taste receptors in your gut and your cells that are designed to detect sugar in the bloodstream and whenever they taste artificial sweeteners, the pancreas is still going to release insulin as to store that energy. However, because there isn't actually any real glucose there, the insulin release will be for nothing and doing this regularly is gonna disrupt the gut and it could also potentially make your cells insulin resistant. One Israeli study in 2014 fed artificial sweeteners to mice for 11 weeks. This raised blood sugar and developed glucose intolerance by altering the gut microbiome in mice. When the scientists took the bacteria from those glucose intolerant mice and injected them into the germ-free mice, then they also saw an increase in blood sugar levels. They became diabetic because they were injected with diabetic bacteria. Interestingly, they were able to reverse the higher blood sugar by changing the gut microbiome back to normal, which means that the effects of any unhealthy diet are linked to the disruption in the microbiota. Most of your immune system and metabolic reactions are processed in the gut and it's vital to keep it functioning optimally. Emerging research is showing that artificial sweeteners have a negative effect on the metabolism, gut microbiome, food cravings and overall health. One study found that artificial sweeteners altered the gene expression of certain metabolic pathways linked to obesity and diabetes. Researchers exposed human and rat cells to aspartame and acesulfame K for three weeks, which are common sweeteners in many diet drinks. The results showed that both sweeteners negatively altered lipid metabolism and the breakdown of macronutrients from proteins and fat. Surprisingly, these changes didn't occur in the presence of natural sugars like glucose or fructose. It suggests that artificial sweeteners can contribute to metabolic syndrome through an entirely different pathway than insulin resistance. It also means that regular coke may potentially be healthier than diet coke just because it's more natural because of the glucose. 
although coke is definitely nothing something you could find in nature and it's <laughs> super bad for your health but yeah regular coke may be actually better than diet coke but at the same time regular coke still has aspartame in it there are very few studies linking changes in gut microbiome with aspartame in humans so the long-term effects of artificial sweeteners on human health is still unknown which means that up until we get the really bad long-term studies showing how bad these sweeteners may potentially be you can feel safe and secure as long as you don't create a placebo-like insulin response from consuming these artificial sweeteners. As long as you keep telling yourself that it's okay, you may be okay. <laughs> We're fucked! But you have to also remind yourself, are you addicted to sweetness? Most mammals, including humans, haven't evolved to be eating these highly stimulating and sweetened foods all the time. That's why we developed these taste receptors in the first place so that we could detect highly sweet things and prioritize consuming them to store energy. The ancestral environment in which we grew up in, it was very poor in sugar or carbohydrates, at least for the majority of the year. We definitely didn't have access to tropical fruit from Ecuador year-round, especially if you're living in the Nordic Hemisphere, and therefore our taste receptors haven't readapted to these high concentrations of sweetness. Non-caloric sweeteners are several times stronger than table sugar, syrup, or any other source of carbohydrates. Sucralose is 600 times sweeter than regular sugar. Even just a tiny drop of sweeteners far exceeds the taste of anything you would ever encounter in nature. It's kind of ironic that it's like making them more obese by changing the gut microbiome. It's also true that frequently consuming certain foods and stimulating your sugar receptors will make you used to those levels of hypersweetness. You habituate yourself to prefer sweet things because your taste buds are so used to it. That's why a lot of people who have a sweet tooth can't seem to enjoy these less bland foods such as vegetables, cucumbers or things like organ meats. Drinking stuff like diet sodas may even make you get less enjoyment out of drinking regular water because you're addicted to that kind of stimulating feeling. That's why I believe that you can put artificial sweetener addiction into the same category as sugar addiction. But like we saw in the Israeli study, although sweeteners disrupt the microbiome, it can be reversed and the increased blood sugar levels were directly linked with the altered bacteria. This basically means that the addiction to sweeteners is also caused by the bacterial infections, not the person itself. The bugs and parasites in your gut have adapted to sweeteners and therefore they make you addicted to more sweeteners. Studies done on rats show that consuming sucralose for 12 weeks had 47-80% to 80 less of the healthy bacteria in their gut, whereas the more harmful ones remained present. It basically killed off the good ones and maintained the bad ones. Most sweeteners at least alter the gut microbiome in some shape or form. Whether or not it's gonna lead to some sort of a dysbiosis, leaky gut inflammation or bacterial overgrowth depends on the sweetener and also the host's already present gut health. One thing is sure, sugar feeds the bad bugs and infections like candida and other parasites. The argument that uh, artificial sweeteners gonna help a person to eat fewer calories also doesn't hold much credulity. People who consume more sweeteners tend to weigh more and lab rats who are given sweeteners also will be eating more calories from regular food. Diet beverages may potentially make you hungrier by releasing more insulin and making your microbiome desire more food. Whatever the case may be, 
sweeteners will still develop certain strands of bacteria and taste preferences, making you more akin to preferring those same kinds of sweeteners. Having a dysbiosis is going to practically have a negative effect on everything you do. It's not you, it's your gut bugs. Where's my drink? My diet, Dr. Kelp? But let's take a more specific answer by coming back to the original question, which was, will sucralose from whey protein kick me out of ketosis? To get kicked out of ketosis, you would have to have higher blood glucose in your blood, which will make the liver shut down the production of ketones. With higher blood glucose, you're going to raise insulin, which will shuttle that glucose into the cells. It's true that whey protein by itself is going to raise insulin by virtue of the insulinogenic effects of amino acids. Combining protein with carbohydrates can elevate postprandial insulin levels several times more than consuming protein by itself, which is also why these weight gainer shakes, they all have like a ton of extra carbs from dextrose and maltodextrin to overshoot with insulin, basically. If you were to take pure sugar or sucralose in a fasted state, then you're going to probably experience a short spike in blood sugar followed by a very sharp and steep crash, which is going to make you hypoglycemic and practically kicks you out of ketosis. The same probably happens with a high glycemic protein shake because your body is in deep fat burning mode and it doesn't need insulin to keep the cells energized. That's why it's not a good idea to be drinking protein shakes, exogenous ketones or any other low carb amino acid drinks when you're being sedentary. The reason is that you may potentially kick yourself out of ketosis because you're in deep fat burning mode. The only time when whey protein wouldn't have a negative effect on ketosis would be after a resistance training workout when those amino acids would be shuttled into the cells with the help of insulin. Consuming whey protein before a high sugar meal has actually been shown to lower blood glucose because of the insulin helping with glucose digestion. So in a workout scenario, you would probably dip back into ketosis very fast. But I think you have to ask yourself, would you still want to be consuming sucralose? I think it's clear that sucralose or any other artificial sweeteners aren't something you want to include in your diet and you definitely don't want to be taking them every day. You will be better off by getting protein that doesn't have these sweeteners, but if it's your only source of sweeteners as well, then you're probably going to be fine, although it's still not optimal. My overall conclusion is yes, but not sure, which means that artificial sweeteners may potentially have huge negative side effects on your health as well as weight loss, but it's not guaranteed. People are going to react differently to them and there are other lifestyle factors that have to be kept in mind. The amounts of how much and when you take them are also quite important. But then again, artificial sweeteners have virtually zero benefits. If your only argument is that they're going to help the person to satisfy their sweet tooth and therefore consume fewer calories, then I say that we should focus on fixing the root cause of the issue by eliminating the sweet tooth in the first place so the person wouldn't even want to consume something sweet that's not natural. I mean, the reason people crave something sweet is because they're addicted to sugar and they have conditioned their taste buds to prefer the sweet taste in their mouth. In reality, they could get the same amount of enjoyment and fulfillment from eating something that's naturally sweet, like berries or fruit, without the potential risk of brain cancer. I think that that sounds like a pretty good trade-off. 
and it's definitely a wise move. And I'm still working on my coke addiction, my, my diet coke addiction, <laughs> that is. The problem is the society's general feeling of entitlement towards wanting their cake and eating it too without having to pay any of the downsides. From an evolutionary perspective, it's much smarter to quote-unquote blindfold yourself by completely avoiding these foods. They don't have any nutritional benefit, but they come with potentially a lot of health problems. If the only benefit is the addiction stroke you get, then you'll be better off by fixing the attachment. <laughs> because I mean, we shouldn't be even having these kinds of conversations about whether or not we should be keep consuming artificial sweeteners. Our entire society and civilization would be much more productive and healthier if we were to simply abolish all these franken foods and we would spend our energies on actually fixing problems that really matter. Not getting to eat your cake and satisfying your sweet tooth. They're such basic first world problems. And it's freaking stupid. <laughs> and it's so stupid in my opinion. Just quit and get rid of it. So simple. People's psychological addiction to certain things like entertainment, comfort, alcohol and food. It's keeping the entire mankind away from our true potential. The much wiser, much more effective and much more evolutionarily adaptable approach would be to simply not be concerned with these kinds of things. To not even think about them and to free yourself from all attachments to food. That's why I like the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting. They detach me mentally as well as physically from the desire to eat highly stimulating foods. Paradoxically, I get more enjoyment out of eating real natural food than the artificial stuff because I know it's better for me and I know that I've managed to master my urges as well. So I get more enjoyment out of that. And if you're feeling stuck or enslaved by your sweet tooth, then a short period of eating a keto diet acts like a sugar detox that's gonna help to repopulate the good microbiome. If you add intermittent fasting into the mix as well, then you're basically free entirely. But they'll never take both. Diet Dr. Kelp! You can check out my books, Keto Fasting and my meal plan, Keto IF, if you want to know how to accomplish this. Moving on with the second question. Will intermittent fasting slow down my metabolism? <laughs> you got to eat three small meals a day to prevent your body from starving. If you don't eat, you're going to wreck your metabolism and you're going to lose all your muscle. Sounds very familiar indeed. In our society where food is all around us and abundant, the idea of fasting has already become the equivalent of the F word. What did you call me? People look at you like you're a psycho if you skip a meal or even fast for longer than a day. What is wrong with you? The biggest fears of starvation come from psychological associations with food and fasting. You have to eat because there's so much delicious food around you and you have to be afraid of the hunger feeling because it literally means you're about to die. <laughs> Although there are many health benefits to intermittent fasting such as improved insulin sensitivity, stem cell growth and cellular autophagy, it can still have, neg it can still have negative side effects. Fasting is a stressor to your body like any other. Physiologically, the stress response of fasting for three days is the same as running away from a lion. The difference is only a matter of degree and magnitude. That's why it's always important to remember the principle of hormesis when doing any kind of biohack or even optimizing your other areas of life. 
more is not always better and usually you can get the majority of the results by reaching a certain point of peak efficiency. How able you are to practice fasting and how does it affect you specifically is going to depend on many things like how fat adapted you are, do you have any medical conditions and what's your emotional bandwidth. I can't do it. The idea of fasting slowing down your metabolism sounds reasonable and very intuitive because it's so simple. You skip a meal, you don't eat breakfast and your body thinks it's starving. The next piece of food you put into your mouth is now gonna be directly stored as fat because your body thinks it's starving. Even a celery stalk will now make you fat if you haven't eaten for 16 hours. In reality, a slow metabolism is the effect of many other things that are all connected with each other. So let's look at some of the principles of how your body's metabolism regulates itself. Your metabolism is the overarching system by which you convert food into energy. That energy gets created from calories that can come from either the food that you ate or from your own body fat. How many calories you need to maintain physiological functioning depends on your basal metabolic rate or BMR. Your BMR is determined by how much you weigh, what's your lean muscle mass, your sex, your age and other factors. Your total daily energy expenditure or TDE is the total amount of energy you're burning throughout the 24 hour period. This is the number that tells you how much food you need to actually eat to either maintain, lose or gain weight. Your TDE is determined by your BMR your levels of physical activity, hormones, medical condition, what foods you eat and in what amounts. Your actual metabolic rate is regulated through the thyroid gland, which is located in the front of your throat. Thyroid hormones like T3 and T4 affect your body temperature, heart rate and daily caloric buffer zone. Your non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT includes the other physical activities, that aren't exercise, like simply moving around the house, fidgeting, twitching and waving your arms up in the air. If you restrict your calories or you're gonna have lower thyroid, you'll have less energy and you're gonna naturally compensate for that by lowering your need. You're gonna start moving less because you wanna preserve more energy subconsciously and that's going to, by default, lower your metabolism. In reality, there is no such thing as a slow or a fast metabolism because how high or how low your metabolic rate is depends on the variables that can be regulated by either increasing energy expenditure or paying more attention to NEAT. Meal timing is also irrelevant. Studies have shown that eating more frequent meals doesn't have any benefit in terms of body composition. Eating six small meals isn't gonna stoke your metabolism because eating two large meals is gonna have the same thermic effect of food. The thermic effect of food or how much of the food you ate gets burnt off as calories depends on not the timing but more on the macronutrient ratios of the meal. Protein has the highest thermic effect or TEF. TEF of protein is 25 to 30%. TEF of carbs is 6 to 8%. And TEF of fat is 2 to 3%. On an average diet, the TEF of food is about 10% which means that 10% of the calories you ate will be burnt off as energy. So, if your daily caloric intake is 2500 
then you're still gonna have a TEF of 250 no matter how many meals you have. If you consume 2500 calories in total, then with 6 meals of 420 calories each, you're gonna be burning 42 calories per meal. If you multiply 42 with 6, you're gonna get 252 daily TEF. If you consume 4 meals of 625 calories each, you're gonna get 62 calories burned per meal. Multiply 62 with 4, 248 daily TEF. If you consume 2 meals of 1250, 1250 you're gonna end up with 125 calories burnt per meal. Multiply 125 with 2, you're gonna get 250 daily TEF. No matter what meal frequency you choose, you'll still be burning the same amount of calories from TEF, which means that the macronutrients themselves are gonna affect the TEF score. Your metabolic rate functions like in a positive feedback loop. You eat more, you weigh more, you need more energy to maintain that weight. Your metabolic rate will also be higher because of that. And you have to eat more food to maintain that balance. If you consume fewer calories than your TDE, whether because of fasting, dieting or eating less, then you're naturally gonna lose some weight, which can be a good thing. If you repeat this pattern of putting in less fuel into your body, then it's gonna eventually downregulate the body's requirements for that energy and you'll become more preservative and more efficient with what you've got. This is gonna lead to a slightly lower TDE just by virtue of your body needing less food. Fasting slowing down the metabolism is also mostly the result of simply eating less food or losing body weight which will naturally make your body lower its homeostasis for caloric intake overall. Funny enough, fasting for 48 hours actually speeds up the metabolism by 3-14%. to My theory is that when you start a fast, then the first days you're still running on your current TDE, which causes a slight bump in energy expenditure, but after a while you're gonna lower it down as a natural defensive response. Fasting for longer than 7 days will definitely lower your metabolic rate and decrease your protein demands as well. That's the point where your body literally goes into conservation mode and it wants to maintain as much energy as it can. But that's not going to happen with simply fasting every day. Fasting itself can't directly lower your metabolism because you can still eat a whole bunch of food and maintain a certain metabolic rate. Eating fewer calories and starving yourself are the ones responsible for this. Starving. Fasting can potentially lead to a lower metabolic rate if it affects the thyroid gland in a negative way. If you haven't eaten anything in a long time, then there are going to be fewer thyroid hormones in the blood, which will indicate to the body that in order to survive, we need to preserve some energy. This can cause a disruption in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis, which is the central stress response system in your body that also controls most of the hormones. When you experience stress of any kind, the hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland that you're under attack and you need to release certain hormones. The adrenal glands receive the same message and they're gonna release cortisol which is going to increase the amount of stress hormones and glucocorticoids in the bloodstream. This is going to lower activated T3 and T4 in your blood. Glucocorticoids will also be converted to what's called reverse T3, which can't be used inside the cells for thyroid functioning, and therefore it can hurt the metabolism. The same effect can happen with caloric restriction diets, and I would suggest that 
it's much worse actually. If you're not getting enough calories and you're missing out on some of the micronutrients as well, then your body will be in this state of lower metabolic rate for much longer than if you were to simply fast for a few days and get it over with. Like we mentioned, fasting is a physiological stressor like any other and many people are going to react differently to different kinds of stress. If you're more fat adapted, then you're gonna experience less stress from food deprivation. If you are less emotionally resilient, then you'll interpret the fast emotionally as more stressful than it actually is. Therefore, you're gonna release more glucocorticoids. If you're not sleeping enough, you're gonna be more tired, more insulin resistance, and you're gonna be more prone to storing food as fat. If you're not getting certain nutrients, you'll have less serotonin, which will disrupt the HPA axis, and it's gonna make you more prone to anxiety, which will then again reinforce the feedback loop. As you can see, there are many things that determine what your metabolic rate is and how many calories you have to eat to maintain your body's functioning. You have to know whether or not fasting is an additional stressor that exceeds the positive beneficial hormetic zone or are you simply under-adapted to a specific type of a fasting protocol. Your body will adapt to any kind of stress it gets put under. However, there's always the cost of trading between certain hormonal outputs or metabolic processes. For instance, if fasting causes you excess stress and you have more cortisol, you'll eventually lower your thyroid and testosterone, which will lower your metabolism as well. Then you have to know what kind of other stressors you need to pay attention to in your life and whether or not it's worth it to fast. Get help. If you become fat adapted, then you get used to fasting. However, that sharpness and mental acuity you experience is also partly due to the elevated stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. You're gonna feel normal and almost addicted to that state, but at the same time, you're still running on activated adrenals. Now, if you add on top of that several cups of black coffee throughout the day, not sleeping enough at night, doing high-intensity crossfit wads in a fast state, and depleting your minerals, then you're gonna end up with overtaxing the adrenals. At that point, you're gonna have chronically higher levels of glucocorticoids which will lead to lower thyroid functioning that can damage your metabolism long term. That's why it's essential to never keep your body under chronic stress all the time. Acute stress in the example of hormesis is very good and fasting is an incredible hormetic stressor but you have to allow your body to come out of the fight or flight to recover. Therefore, regular intermittent fasting itself won't slow down your metabolism it's simply a natural response to a stressor that needs to be taken in the right amounts. Even if you were to fast for 10 days and experience very low metabolic rate by the end of it, you'll probably ramp it back up quite fast because your body will readapt to eating. That's what has happened to me whenever I have these extended fasts. The day after I break the fast, I have a super fast metabolism and I have a ton of extra energy as well. On a daily intermittent fasting schedule, you can still restrict your eating window without fearing that you're gonna wreck your metabolism. The 16 and 8 or the 20 and 4 hour fasting window, they're nothing compared to the extended fasts. Not really. Fasting potentially lowering your TDE is actually the result of eating fewer calories overall. You may accidentally eat far less than you need just because of not feeling hungry and that's gonna eventually downregulate your caloric demands. So instead of dieting and starving yourself for a month, you would be actually better off by simply fasting for 5 days 
and getting it over with. I need a horse! So here's what to do to not slow down your metabolism with fasting. First, you have to practice slightly longer eating windows. Instead of eating just one meal a day within an hour, you can extend it by a few hours to allow your body to absorb more nutrients. Choking down a lot of calories in a small time frame is gonna inevitably make you miss out on some of the absorption. Therefore, it's gonna lead to micronutrient deficiencies and thyroid malfunctioning. If you were to eat more often every once in a while, you bring more variety into your feeding schedule. In my opinion, the warrior diet with 20 hours of fasting and 4 hours of eating is probably the optimal window. The 16 and 8 window isn't really fasting, it's more like time-restricted feeding. Secondly, make sure you eat enough calories when you break the fast. The biggest reason people slow down their metabolism is that they combine extended fasts with severe caloric restriction as well. Third, get enough micronutrients that promote thyroid hormones and their metabolism such as iodine, vitamin D, omega-3s, magnesium, electrolytes, selenium and amino acids. Seafood, fish and eggs in particular are quite good and useful for thyroid and HPA functioning. Tyrosine-rich foods that support the thyroid are pumpkin seeds, beef, poultry, almonds, avocados, eggs and fish. They also have B12 and selenium. Certain healthy fats that promote ketone production can give your body the necessary fat-soluble vitamins which are needed for hormone production. MCT oil has been shown to have a direct thermic effect that increases metabolic rate. However, you still have to watch out for that MCT poop though. 6. Limit goitrogenic foods. Goitrogens are compounds that can affect the thyroid gland if you consume them in large amounts. Foods high in goitrogens are things like cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cabbage, kale and some fruit. If you think you have thyroid issues, then you should definitely not eat raw vegetables. Cooking or steaming your vegetables is gonna lower the number of goitrogens in these foods. 7. Keeping your overall stress low is also essential for preventing slow thyroid. You want to get enough deep sleep, exposure to natural sunlight, enough exercise, hydration, rest and not overproduce cortisol. You don't want to consume too much caffeine. You don't want, you don't want to do too much high intensity exercise and you don't want to be stressed out with work. Number 8. Certain herbs like ashwagandha, ginseng, holy basil, rhodiola, rosea, lion's mane, dandelion and chards they can support the thyroid and lower stress by promoting the parasympathetic recovery mode. And 9. A healthy insulin spike can also help. If you eat some carbohydrates like a sweet potato or rice, then you can boost your metabolic rate, especially if you're eating a low-carb diet. I haven't had a carb since 2004. When it comes to exercise, then doing low-intensity cardio for long periods of time will make your body more efficient at performing exercise at that particular intensity. This is gonna decrease your metabolic rate to maintain those intensities of exercise. It's like another evolutionary trade-off between becoming more efficient with producing more ATP from fewer calories. Having more muscle mass will increase your BMR which will become increasingly more valuable as you age. It's a general trend that as you age your BMR decreases alongside with other metabolic factors and you're gonna lose lean muscle mass. Now the question I wanna ask is is it because of the aging that your metabolism slows down or is it because of the decrease in muscle mass and physical activity that your metabolism has slowed down? You can ask the same thing about growth hormone. Do older people have lower levels of growth hormone because of their old age or is it because they've become sedentary and they're not exercising? 
that reduction in movement will make the body naturally lose its muscle. You become less insulin sensitive and you're more prone to all types of disease. That's why I think it's super important to keep yourself physically fit no matter what age you are. Aging, getting old is not an excuse. You have to be even more diligent about it as you become older because you're going to get more fragile if you don't. The concluding answer again is yes, but no. Fasting will inevitably lower your metabolic rate slightly, but it's not a bad thing. It's simply a natural response to food deprivation that's going to go back to normal after you start eating. You don't have to worry about fasting wrecking your hormones or thyroid as long as you fast reasonably. You also have to make sure that you follow up your fasting with feasting and eat adequate amounts of food. Truth is that being stressed out about fasting is going to raise cortisol which makes the experience of fasting more stressful than it actually is. That's why it's again a good idea to become keto-adapted when doing fasting because you're gonna have less hunger, you'll burn fat more easily, your brain will have more access to energy and you'll feel generally more comfortable doing it. So keto fasting and keto IF, they're your go-to resources again. Do it. Let's move on with the next question. If I could keep only three biohacks for the rest of my life, what would they be? So... Do you want to be a biohacker? <laughs> well, I'm going to basically start off with kind of looking at what biohacking is and what's the purpose of it. Biohacking is the art and science of optimizing your physiology for the sake of living a healthier and better life. The goal of biohacking is generally longevity, improved fitness, higher performance at work, more results with less effort and the pursuit of even certain state of mind. The problem with the human body is that it's a highly complex system with many subsystems affecting each other's status all the time. There's the central nervous system that's connected with the brain and other organs. The brain itself is a part of the HPA axis, which itself is a part of the gut-brain microbiome axis that includes the central and enteric nervous system and so on. Your psychology and perception can even override a lot of these systems as they change the expression of your physiology by shifting your emotional states. For living a better life both biologically as well as psychologically, you'd want to follow a certain lifestyle that holistically keeps your entire body-mind vessel in order. Vigorous health, adequate micronutrients, mitochondrial density, beneficial hormetic stressors, daily challenges, plenty of restorative sleep, active stress recovery, mindfulness, neuroplasticity, loving relationships, a greater sense of purpose and meaning, they're all essential and they should be cultivated every day. If I had to keep only a limited amount of biohacks, then they would have to cover all of these factors. So my top three biohacks with the biggest, most holistic effect on everything you do would be meditation, intermittent fasting and cold heat thermogenesis. These practices are the fundamentals to living optimally and they're both physically as well as mentally stimulating. They're also going to give you the most significant effects in terms of your performance, health, well-being and time as well. Best of all, they're so natural and intrinsic to the human body that they can be done practically everywhere with no additional costs. You don't have to take dozens of supplements hoping that you're going to get some sort of an extra edge while at the same time it's simply a placebo effect. It's 
Honestly, I don't even consider them to be these cutting-edge biohacks because they're more like disciplines. They're more like disciplines for developing. They're like meta-biohacks. The hacks to make all other hacks obsolete. Is it safe? Yeah. So let me explain you why I chose these three particular practices. Number one, why meditation? Meditation is a mental technique with a wide range of possible applications. You can use it to train your concentration, you can use it to regulate your autonomic nervous system, you can use it to put yourself into a certain state of mind, you can practice visualizations for future success, you can visualize failures, gratitude, you can reduce your stress, you can bring more clarity into your purpose in life, and you can develop a closer relationship with yourself. It's quite literally one of the best forms of self-inquiry because it lets your subconscious mind do the work for you. Meditation is a meta-skill that makes everything else you do more effective. There's even evidence to show how meditation stimulates neuroplasticity and increases grey matter volume in the brain. In my opinion, meditation should be mandatory for all members of society because it's gonna improve your self-awareness, improve your self-control, self-image, appreciation for life and others. If more people would meditate or at least become more in touch with who they are, we would have less anxiety, less depression, less aggression, less apathy and definitely less incidents of hostile road rage. By practicing meditation, I'm keeping myself more self-aware and my mind on point. I can always revert back to meditating for focusing harder on something, trying to figure out some sort of a question or to simply improve my mental well-being. Reality, as you experience it, unravels itself in your mind and you want to have a good relationship with yourself, no matter how many supplements you take. Number two, why intermittent fasting? Intermittent fasting is the act of voluntarily abstaining from food for certain periods of time. IF has a ton of health benefits like reduced inflammation, cellular rejuvenation, detoxification, stem cell growth, improved insulin sensitivity, and greater fat loss. It's the miracle healing drug of the human body. Caloric restriction through fasting is one of the few known ways of increasing lifespan across all species. Fasting as a biohack is amazing because you'll not only get better biomarkers, but you'll also be more productive with your nutrition. You don't have to spend time messing around with food or to run off those extra calories you ate. It also builds a bigger buffer zone that helps you to stay healthy even when you mess things up. By practicing intermittent fasting, I myself am confident that I could cure most of the metabolic diseases a lot of the people struggle with, such as diabetes, obesity, syndrome X, hypertension, insulin resistance, and even tumors. Fasting is also one of the best anti-aging strategies. When you're in a fasted state, you give your body the chance to heal itself. Your body is incredibly intelligent by itself. Our own behavior, whether by eating all the time, taking certain supplements, or misaligning our biology with our environment, gets in the way of these processes. If you're fasting, you're literally allowing your body to selectively get rid of the old worn out cells, recycle them into energy and become reborn. I'm back. Number three, number three, why cold heat? Th cold heat thermogenesis is about exposing yourself to different temperatures as to cause a beneficial hormetic effect. There are many studies showing the benefits of both the cold and the heat. Cold boosts the immune system, stimulates brown fat activation, 
builds mitochondria, reduces inflammation, sharpens the mind and promotes recovery. Heat stimulates the lymph system, triggers heat shock proteins, increases growth hormone and supports cardiovascular health. Although heat and cold by themselves are incredibly good for you, combining them can have a much bigger effect. Alternating quickly high heat and cold functions like a lymphatic pump that promotes blood flow, releases a storm of neurotransmitters, triggers hormesis and makes you feel like a million bucks. I think it's virtually impossible to not feel energized after taking a cold water plunge. This is also one of the original biohacks practiced in sauna cultures because the human physiology wouldn't experience that kind of extreme heat and extreme cold within just the short time span of a few minutes. You could feel hot and sweaty at summer or you could feel cold and shivering at winter but you could never go from 100 degrees into minus 30 degrees celsius in just a blink of an eye. That kind of a dramatic shift it has incredible health benefits because your body is gonna be shocked and it triggers an acute stress response that's gonna actually be good for you in the right dose. What I recommend is having two to three 20 to 30 minute sauna sessions per week. It would be awesome to combine it with a cold shower, a cold water bath or an ice bath for a few minutes. At winter time you can also go jump in the snow or swim in the lakes which is one of the best privileges of living in the north. It's cold outside. So these are my top three biohacks that I would keep no matter what. When you look at the idea of biohacking then a crucial part of it is the process of deduction, removing the unessential and potentially harmful activities that do more harm than good. With these top three biohacks, you are literally hacking away all the potential mini biohacks that end up being distractions. Before you start taking massive supplements or you buy expensive gadgets, you have to make sure that you're doing the fundamentals right which are basic nutrition, exercise, stress management, focus and work. That's what you can learn about in the biohacking bootcamp as well. So if you can, then definitely consider signing up. Even if you're not gonna sign up for the July's bootcamp, then I'm probably gonna have some similar bootcamps in the upcoming months, especially if it's winter time, so we can do some cold heat thermogenesis in real time. Winter is coming. Let's carry on with the next question. What's the best way to gain weight on keto? Well, it's as simple as eating sticks of butter, because you can probably gain a whole bunch of weight by eating 10 sticks of butter every day, but whether or not it's good for you is a whole other story. But all jokes aside, you can gain weight on keto like any other diet. You consume more energy than you burn over the course of a long period of time. Thermodynamics is still the driving force of body composition, but when you're on a ketogenic diet, those thermodynamics will be slightly altered. Having generally lower levels of insulin and being glycogen depleted may allow you to consume slightly more calories without gaining weight, but that effect is probably quite small and it's not guaranteed. Eating different macronutrient ratios will also alter the thermic effect of food, especially if it's higher on protein because protein has more TEF Likewise, eating inadequate amounts of protein may lead you to lose lean muscle despite eating more calories, which is why people who eat a low protein but high fat high carb diet, they look like they're skinny fat. No muscle, but still fat. I do have a little bit of excess skin though. Overall macronutrient ratios and the energetic demands of your body, they're, they're gonna dictate how the calories you eat, how they're gonna be utilized 
and what kind of a body composition you'll end up with. For instance, eating excess calories without resistance training will most likely direct those extra calories into fat storage, whereas if you were to be training, a part of that would be used for muscle growth instead. Different modalities of exercise also create different patterns of nutrient partitioning, as endurance athletes they have far less lean body mass than strength athletes. Assuming that you want to gain quality weight with lean muscle mass and no fat gain, you'd want to make sure that you're not going to put on unnecessary fat mass just because of eating more calories. This is a very quote-unquote lazy approach to building muscle. Oh, I'll just train and I'm going to eat a little bit more. Of course, you're going to gain weight and some muscle, but chances are you could be putting on a whole lot less fat if you were to follow a more leaner bulking strategy. To build muscle, you need to first have an adequate training stimulus by doing heavy resistance training. That can be achieved by bodyweight exercises or lifting weights. Secondly, you need to trigger protein synthesis by eating enough protein and amino acids. Thirdly, you need to provide excess energy, whether from consuming more calories or recomping your own body fat. And fourth, you need to get enough recovery in the form of sleep and downtime. The most direct effect comes from training stimulus and protein synthesis, creating an adaptive signal and providing the nutrients for adaptation. On a ketogenic diet, you're by default more prone to burning fat for fuel, which makes it easier for you to lose body fat as well. Gaining lean muscle will also be much more effective because of it, as you're never gonna get too fat. In my own example, I've built primarily lean muscle over the four years of my ketogenic journey and I've never gone through these bulking or cutting periods. That's what I've been doing on my Keto Lean Gain series as well. I'm deliberately trying to do a micro-recomposition of lean muscle, and I'm, I want to see how little weight I can gain while still building muscle and getting stronger. So far, I haven't seen any significant changes at the scale, although my lifts and muscle size have increased a little bit. Then again, I haven't been that diligent with it either because... I'm only trying to bring up certain parts of my body while staying around my current body weight. I'm only expecting to see significant results by the end of the summer because I'm playing the really long game. So how do you build lean muscle? To support gaining quality lean mass, you want to be consuming slightly more protein for the increased protein synthesis. Eating very strict keto macros like 80% fat, 15% protein and 5% carbs may work for epileptic children and diabetics but it may be slightly harder to build muscle with it. Your body needs a certain amount of protein to maintain its current weight. The minimal requirement is somewhere 0.6 to 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass. The optimal zone for muscle gain is around 0.8 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. Eating above 1.2 grams per pound of body weight has no significant benefits and you'll be simply wasting your protein at that point. Therefore, when building muscle on keto, you want to aim for the 1.0 grams per pound of body weight of protein. I myself generally stick somewhere between 0.8 to 1.0 and I feel incredible. If the rest of your calories come from carbs and fat, then you will see incremental increases in lean body mass while staying relatively the same body fat. Consuming a lot of extra calories isn't needed and it definitely doesn't benefit building muscle. Anything above 500 extra calories is more likely to be stored as fat and it won't help with lean gains. That's why I always stay around my caloric maintenance and maybe consume 300 to 500 extra calories on days I work out hard. 
on rest days I'll eat slightly less and it's gonna balance itself out quite nicely. You're gonna end up supporting muscle growth on surplus days and you're gonna promote fat loss on fat loss days. And if you do it gradually then you're gonna go through a very easy recomposition towards the positive as long as you keep progressing with your training because the training aspect is the most important variable. What's the matter? The CIA got you pushing too many pencils? To learn the principles of how I structure my training and nutrition then check out my Keto Fit program. It has a 30 day meal plan, 4 week workout routine and over 50 recipes that build muscle and burn fat. But let's carry on with the next question. Why is the world full of hatred and resentment? People have forgotten how to forgive and they're heading towards money and power. Why is it so? Why did people forget to stay childlike no matter how old are we? I agree with that the general trends in society are more ego driven than in the past. Of course, we can't imagine how bad things were in the 14th century when Europe was plagued by black death and medieval warfare. Or we can't even imagine how entire hunter-gatherer societies were wiped out by predators. Modern society is generally happier and safer than at any other times in history. Despite that, mainstream music, movies, entertainment and the general mindset is still more hostile than loving. Part of it definitely has to do with living in such a particular day and age. We're coming out of the era of World War II and Cold War which were definitely causing a lot of severe traumas in the cultural consciousness of nations. Old scars haven't healed yet and they're being constantly ripped open by stubbornness. You are obsolete! Unfortunately, human nature is hostile towards quote-unquote the other, the other group. Us versus them, eye for an eye, insult with an insult. They're all normal between politicians, between countries and even amongst ordinary people. Everyone is looking out for themselves because that's how they see everyone else behave around them as well. Social media isn't making things better either because internet has become like a battleground for arguments, anonymous flame wars, social gratification and displaying one's status on the social dominance hierarchy. No matter how sophisticated we think we are as a species, humans are still primates and we're very much governed by our evolutionary psychology. We create tribes and social hierarchies of competence that are supposed to ensure the thriving of the entire group. Most of your behavior as a member of society is subconsciously motivated by improving your status amongst your peers because it's gonna give you more access to reproductive success, more resources, better locations to live, more time and enjoyment. In my opinion, these kind of factors all make the person more ego-driven by giving them immediate gratification. We're being given a lot of stimulation, a lot of information, a lot of mind-altering images and a lot of subconscious programs that are telling us to adopt certain types of behavior and values. In the example of Hollywood and the life of celebrities, then their lives displayed on social media actually function as expectations of what's deemed to be important for those individuals who want to identify themselves with a particular social group. If you want to be thought of as high status, if you want to be thought of as a high status person in your modern society, then you'll probably show how many Lamborghinis you have or how much money you have in the bank. In a different kind of society, being high status or of high importance 
would require different traits or different characteristics. Ultimately, it comes down to what kind of values and essence the particular culture holds. People in Estonia want to behave based on Estonian values and an Amazonian hunter based on Amazonian tradition. However, the prevalence of Western culture can affect both examples. People in Estonia like to watch Hollywood movies and people in the Amazon probably value Western merchandise as well, like drinking a can of Coke. The degree to how much it does so depends on how much the individual actually values those cultural beliefs. In the case of modern society being overly motivated by money and power, then the reason this is so is because people value money and power. They value money and power because they think valuing money and power is appropriate for their culture. And the reason they think like that is because they're being fed the value of money and power from pop culture, mainstream news, in social media and social interactions. Show me the money! Authenticity and vulnerability are definitely on the decline because everyone is trying to live up to the expectations of the high-status members of the society. What's, e what's even crazier about it is that the high-status people themselves behave in such a way because they think they need to behave in that particular way as to maintain their high-status position in the eyes of others. And the other people themselves view high-status people as high-status because they think that what they're doing is high-status. It's a vicious feedback loop of people trying to act based on what they think others may think of them. This is the matrix of society. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. You are not who you think you are. You are not what I think you are. You are who you think I think you are. It's a psychological matrix of creating hyper-realities that encompass cultural values, history, social conditioning, and lack of self-awareness. If we were to live in a society that valued more cooperation instead of competition, more compassion instead of greed, more forgiveness instead of backlash, more optimism instead of nihilism, then the individuals of that society would also behave in a positive way, because that kind of a society would value those kinds of things. Welcome to the desert of the real. So... To change the world for the better, you have to first change yourself and start embodying those qualities you wish to see in the world. You can't be certain that you're doing the right thing, but you can be certain that they feel right for you and you can always change your ways if you gain better insight or if you learn something new. Before judging others, before being loud and mouthful on the internet about how things should be, before being angry at someone else, before becoming an activist, before feeling entitled to success and glory, before all of that, you have to sort yourself out first. Get your own health in order, eliminate your own bad habits, quit your addictions, stop lying to yourself and others, stop talking behind people's backs, stop bringing more hate and resentment into the world, and clean up your life. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change themselves. That's an age-old wisdom and it characterizes human nature perfectly. Fortunately, all of those things can be transcended with enough awareness and discipline. You just have to do the right thing and focus on being the greatest version of yourself. When you do that, when you shift your focus on non-stop continuous improvement, 
only then can you start spreading those same ideals and values onto others. Because you can't preach what you don't practice. And you have to get your skin in the game. That's what I'm doing every day myself. I'm trying to constantly get better and move closer to my goals. While at the same time, I'm being mindful of what I'm doing, where I'm heading, and whether or not it's the right thing. That's what everyone should follow as well. And only this can pull the masses of society from the matrix. Be the change you want to see. And then diligently share this kind of message with others. You have to become a beacon of hope for a better and more meaningful future. Once we rid ourselves from our conditioning, once we forgive our mistakes, once we reveal our weaknesses, only then can we move forward towards something new. And if you feel like you want to help spreading these kinds of ideals and values we've been discussing in this podcast, then the best and most effective way of doing so would be to leave a review on iTunes or the other social media apps like Stitcher or my new favorite CastBox. Definitely share it with a friend because word to mouth is the most impactful way of improving the cultural consciousness of your close social group as well. What is real? Check out the show notes for more resources and information about future events. And with that, I'm going to conclude this episode. Make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.